The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I, of course, am Tyler, your host who knows these books and is very excited to spread the gospel of the Dragon Reborn. And I am joined by Greg, who has heard me talk about way too much about this over the weekend because we spent a weekend together playing board games and hearing me talk about the Wheel of Time. Are you sick of it yet, Greg? I am not. I, I will also add to that that um, you know, browsing around the social media accounts for our podcast, like it's wheel of time season, baby. Like a lot of excitement building. I know on some of my accounts I follow tour books, um, and they were really starting to to pitch for the new show, which I assume helps them sell books uh as well. Um, but uh yeah, it's it's wheel of time season. And uh, you know, part of that, of course, as our listeners hopefully know by now, is that in two little days from when you are hearing this episode drop, if you're listening to a day of, uh, we have episode two of our television show recap of season one, which we are celebrating as a work of great writers and great actors who deserve to be paid. So please enjoy those episodes. Um, I will say uh, I know that both of the striking guilds now have charity funds that if people are inclined to donate a little something yeah. to, that can help your, uh, you know, if you're feeling uh, the burden of consuming content from these producers and movie studios, uh, you can you can do that. But but most importantly, listen to our episodes and celebrate the work of these creatives and, and so on. So um, we hope you enjoyed the first if you listen to it. And if this is news to you that it dropped in between when you check this feed, um, you can go back now and uh, listen to episode one of the television recap, which covers episodes one and two of the show. Two days from now, you will hear episode two, which covers episodes three and four. And gosh, we hope in the two subsequent weeks, uh, you hear episode three about five and six and episode four about seven and eight, all of which have yet to be recorded. So that's why I'm saying hopefully, but we'll get there. We have plans. We'll have it all there and ready for you as expected. As someone who has a PhD in economics and teaches at a school where almost everyone is like a performing arts major, it's just wonderful to hear someone say that many numbers in a row. So (laughs) thank you, Greg. I think you nailed every piece of that. I'm really excited for y'all to be watching the show along with us. It is literally the longest version of an ill-advised discussion of visual media that we could possibly (laughs) devise. The first episode is an hour and 15 minutes of ill-advised discussion. Uh, and speaking of ill-advised discussion of visual media, if you have finished all three chapters this week, you would notice that the chapter icon on chapter 14 is something we have not seen before. It is an image of two individuals facing one another in silhouette. They appear to be female silhouettes, although it could also be a man in a helmet. And they are mirror images of each other in the sense that one is white on a black background and the other is black on a white background. And I want to say nothing else until Greg has a chance to analyze this because I know things that he doesn't. So Greg, what were your thoughts upon seeing this chapter icon uh it was exciting it's actually been a while since we've had one of these and uh, a new one to talk about by is it this the first one in this book is that accurate i think i believe so there may have been one prior but you might be right yeah um it's funny uh the pose of the figure um, reminded me of the girl with the pearl earring classic painting, right? It's kind of, well, and it just 
so I seem cool. I'll say, uh, well, cool to like 20 years ago. Uh, it also is like the Paris Hilton red carpet, right? Where you go over your shoulder just a little and yeah. uh, pose that way. Um, so I, I kind of liked uh, that. And then um, my second association was, um, you know, my son and I recently went to the science museum and they have a whole set of those optical illusions where they're like, is uh -huh. it a vase or two faces? And it, it has that kind of vibe to it. It doesn't quite work the way it's divided up. Um, you know, yeah. it, it the central piece couldn't be a vase, in other words. Right. Um, so it, it kind of was reminiscent of that. Now, all that being said, like, um, I'm actually not positive I understand exactly what this is signifying, um, even from the chapter. So I look forward to learning some of this. But I think the the overall theme here is like um, mirroring and duplicity and, um, you know, the ways in which white and black are mixed here. Um, it's funny because, you know, the the primary symbol of the, the Aes Sedai fits that kind of two colors complementing each other perfectly. And this, in some ways, is a much more complex version of that, but they don't seem to be in harmony here. It feels more oppositional the way the colors are lined out. And I don't have the art school vocabulary to articulate that better, but that's kind of the feeling I get is that we have opposed factions kind of in this symbol. You have exactly the right read on this. I don't think you need any more art school vocabulary to describe what is going on here. Uh, let me just recite some words back to you that you said and see whether or not you can figure out what this chapter icon is used to symbolize. You said oppositional. You said faction. You said black. Mm. This is the symbol for the black Aja. Yeah, I was going to say, first, my fear was like, oh, God, did I read recently enough that I'm going to remember this? Because we were delayed <laughs> in recording. I'm like, no, it was like four days ago. Then uh, I was there by the end of your sentence. OK, yeah. so a, a symbol for the Black Aja. Um, and, you know, not to spoil all of this chapter, because this is not our first. This is our third chapter tonight. Um, but, you know, a real recognition that this is not a thing of rumor, but a, a real thing. So it makes it makes sense that. Um, that's coming in at this point. Um, and put a pin paper clip in. I want to talk about Aja's, uh, in our episode about the TV show coming up because yep. the, those that are taking that journey with us, I don't believe this is a spoiler. You have to wait till episode two, but when the credit series sequence debuts, I felt like there was a lot we hadn't yet unpacked about that, that, you know, yeah. I, I think I first wrote it off as like, they're just trying to be Westworld and Game of Thrones, but there's actually something cooler there going on. So we'll make a note of that. Uh, and that'll be our deep tease for, well, I think it has to be episode three of the television uh, recap. So, uh, so look for trouble when this symbol arises, uh, a reminder that the Aes Sedai are not themselves whole and united. Exactly. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in your description of the symbol when you talked about the fact that these are kind of exact mirror opposites, and yet they somehow don't feel like they're in harmony with one another. And I don't know how exactly an artist makes that work, but it's really effective here. They look just out of sync enough that uh, they, they can't possibly be kind of the two halves of the same pair, as you say, in, you know, other related symbols so i guess i'm just restating what you said because you're really smart but uh <laughs> good job greg i think you win the ill-advised discussion of visual media game uh any last thoughts before i get into a description of chapter 12 yes let's okay. talk about chapter 12 symbol just incredibly briefly as a way to transition yeah uh I saw the title of this chapter, which is the Merlin seat. And I saw that symbol and I didn't think those went together. Is that misremembering or has this not usually been about her? So this symbol uh, is the flame of Tarvalon. And so it is generally used to apply to any Aes Sedai but in particular, the Amerlin seat. So okay. what's interesting about this is I think this might be the first time that we have had this icon used to identify anyone other than Moraine. But the reason mm. why isn't because this is Moraine's symbol that Suan is now bothering. I'm sorry, now borrowing. It's actually that this is kind of Suan's symbol that all Aes Sedai also share with her. Mm. Um. 
Good. Okay. I'll, yeah. I accept that. And it was, I did just flip back and see it was on Tarvelon, uh, the chapter before. Um, so we have seen it recently. Just in my mind, I hadn't necessarily associated it with just her. So, no, all right, totally take reasonable. us into Cool. Haha, <laughs> I'm reasonable. Take that, listeners who thought I was unreasonable. Uh, <laughs> I've seen it in the comments. No, I haven't. Uh, all right. So take us into chapter 12 with your summary, please, of the Merlin seat. Oh, my God, you guys. Greg isn't reading my comments. Uh, so <laughs> in Chapter 12, the Amerlin seat, uh, we are suddenly in the point of view of Suan Sancha, the Amerlin. She is pacing in her room and staring at a box of documents that we learn from her thoughts has been trapped so that if anyone other than her tries to open it, it will light on fire and she hopes injure the person trying to open the box. Um, she describes the room briefly and her history as a fisherman's daughter and how that in influence her kind of like sparse uh, way of decorating. And then finally, uh, her keeper, Liana, enters and tells her that Varen is here. Uh, Suwan insists on seeing her and insists on seeing her alone, which seems to be quite odd. Um, Varen enters, uh, is surprised to hear that the room is warded against eavesdropping, uh, and then gives the news to Suwan. She reveals that Rand has been declared as the dragon and is then told that both of the other false dragons in the world fell at more or less exactly the same time that Rand declared himself. Um, Varen then gives Suwan the Horn of Valir. Um, she asks... Um, Basically, or, or Suwan basically asks, why isn't the horn with Rand? And the response she's given is that someone else has blown the horn. This is when it is revealed that it is Matt who has blown the horn, that he is currently ill, and that he needs healing in the next few hours. And it immediately becomes clear that the Merlin is not necessarily sure that she is going to heal Matt. Uh, she is considering letting someone else take advantage of the horn. Um, finally, there is a discussion of the Sean Chan. Um, there is a brief discussion of the fact that they referred to themselves as the forerunners, so it is likely that there will be more Sean Chan coming in the future. And then we also get a very brief conversation about the girls who are then to be brought to the Amerlin. So this is one of those chapters where a lot of talking happens, which means that I think different people can pull very different things out of it because there are 80 million different little details that you could be particularly interested in. So I'm curious how the chapter landed overall for you and then also what details really excited you or got you you know wanting to read more as this went on um let's start with probably the most obvious place to begin um which is a comparison to a great work of art which is back to the future 2 uh so in back to the future 2 all of a sudden Marty McFly has this Achilles heel of being called a chicken and this is obviously woven into the plot of back to the future 2 and 3 and as a viewer of such fine art, you're like, wait, is this a thing? Did I forget that Marty McFly uh, was afraid to be called chicken? Or is this a new thing? And you just kind of have to accept that the Marty you've known and loved has always been afraid of being called chicken, especially when it's flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, so I know his name is Needles in the film, Tyler. Come on. Uh, so I didn't. <laughs> Uh, so I felt that way about uh, Swan's uh, revelation that she is from a humble origin because yeah. that was like great. And, you know, we didn't get to know this character terribly well before. So a little developmental detail. Then all of her appearances across today's reading are just littered with fish metaphors. It's like, well, you know, it's like a silver pike. And so it was each time there was a new fish metaphor, I was like, wait, is this, was this a thing before? So I'm going to ask you in her first appearance in the last book, was she making fish metaphors this often? I think there was like one fish reference that I caught and was like, oh, that's kind of a fun thing because let me tell you, the fish metaphors do not stop with Suan Sancha. <laughs> uh, this is a, a nice little sampling of the buffet of what she has to offer you. And it's mostly <laughs> metaphors about fish. And like, again, it's it's endearing. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of natural to like a character that wasn't born into the highest tiers of society, but kind of earned their way there. I, I think that misrepresents yeah. it a little bit. But 
um, but like rose through the ranks and in their position. So um, I just felt by the end of these chapters that like, okay, I get it. She's, she's from fish people. <laughs> they do yeah. that. But, um, but it simultaneously started to wonder, well, is this, is there a larger uh, reason for that? And, you know, the mention here, of the Sean Chan, it's like, we have a lot of sea dwelling things going on or, uh, you know, nautical things going on would be the better word for it than sea related things. So, uh, uh, that would be my uh nomination for weirdest set of details I fixated on across these chapters, yeah. And I think one that kind of supports your last observation is that uh, she kind of briefly in this chapter thinks about how long she's been working at this, and she says it's been almost 20 years, and that matches up with what we learned in the previous book. She wanted to basically get into power ever since she heard the prophecy that the dragon was being born, which was about 20 years ago. Um, the other thing that she says is that she has been the Merlin for 10 years. And so if we're doing that math, that means that she became arguably the most powerful woman in the world at approximately 31 or 32. And mm. so I think it's worth kind of noting everything that you're saying about her kind of humble origins. And then also just note, this is a woman who went from zero to president of the world in a very brief period of time. Uh, which uh, just because I'm a terrible nerd, I've been reading a book about the American Revolution, and that is older than uh, George III was. Uh, when we think about this terrible despotic king, he took yep. the throne at 22. And it's like, oh, we were dealing with like, think of your average 22 year old and then put him yeah. in royal uh, spoiling uh, for those those years. So um I think that's really helpful and that's important to note. And also that, you know, it's been essentially, as far as we know, 10 years of a peaceful reign, for lack yeah. of a better term, recognizing it's not political power necessarily. It's, you know, the mm -hmm. head of of closer to the military, I guess. But um, that that has been a quiet time with this kind of added tension building, um, you know, somewhere in here. um, Oh, no, I think I'm crossing streams. We do get that time has passed. This is us checking in with these characters from last week's chapters, too, yeah. where, where it's like, oh, it's been a long time. It's been a long journey and understanding, you know, the effect that that's had on the Merlin seat who's been sitting there getting yeah. anxious, getting tense, not sure which rumors to believe, trying to kind of read the signs, um, which is why I think this conversation with Varen just becomes um, in some ways exposition dump, but really important. Right. Um, yeah. I think of Gandalf kind of finally re realizing it's the one ring. It's like, oh, these are the pieces that lock together the full story that he saw clues of. This is the thing that I think Robert Jordan does a really effective job of is anytime two characters are comparing notes, there's always some like really fun moments of like, you know, two things. And then when they get put together, you somehow see them in a different way than you had before. Um, the version of this that uh, this immediately reminds me of from pop culture is when Doctor Who runs into uh, River Song and they both have their notebooks because mm. they're interacting through, you know, weird timey wimey stuff. Stuff. And I thought that that worked really effectively here, where we get one piece of information we've known, Rand was declared the Dragon Reborn, and then we get a new piece of information that multiple false dragons fell, and then kind of the comparing of notes to find out, oh, the timing matches up almost perfectly. I thought it was like, it was a seed of a mystery that got solved a half a page later, but it kind of gives you that exciting feeling of like, hi, got it, Sherlock, even though like he gave you all the clues as you figured it out uh agreed uh certainly that gives you that full sense of self-satisfaction even though you don't deserve it i think is, is yeah. what you're saying and, and certainly how i feel um really interesting the way the power or actually excuse me the pattern was yep. characterized in those moments the way it's you know we've heard before that the pattern and the wheel weaves as the wheel wills but actually, even though I just repeated that phrase, Will hasn't often felt a part of this. And right. this was a strong moment of Will. It's like, okay, we have the real one now. There's no room in the pattern for the rest. And they just conveniently, I mean, they see, let me make sure I have this right. They see the vision, which leads to a 
seemingly happenstance accident for each of yep. them that just means they die. So it's not even like uh, they're struck dead in awe at the vision, which would be kind of a simpler way. Yep. It's like they don't even deserve that. They're just going to fall <laughs> kind yeah. of ignobly. And it's worth noting, one, that one of the two, uh, Mazrum Taim, is still alive. They said he was captured by Aes Sedai, but not killed. But second, I think just like the thing that stood out to me in this is the way that it's phrased. I think you said, uh, one, you're right, they're personifying the pattern in a really interesting way. But they just describe it as it has no more use for false dragons. And I thought that that... Um, kind of idea of the pattern having need or use of things is something mm. that we hadn't really, you know, to add on top of this personification. The only other thing I would add is that I think this could actually be either minorly retconned or maybe just expanded. I think this is just how Taviran works, right? Rand is able to make people fall in love when they're near him, but I think he can also maybe make people fall off their horses without meaning to from across a continent. And that's kind of crazy. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, I think, again, just it makes because of the way the pattern has I, I'm stammering because it's so weird, but I think I viewed the pattern as just fate up until now. And yeah. to give the fate, the the pattern agency is very weird. I appreciate what you're saying, that it could be kind of just an extension of Taviran, that this one Taviran is so strong, it has the ability to push out the others. But I suspect this is like a new way of thinking about the pattern that's going to continue to grow and expand as time goes on. Um, you know, whenever something has force like that, it makes me think who's controlling it. And yeah. every indication so far is that, no, it's more like fate. Nothing controls it. Uh, but I'm curious to learn more. And I'm sure either either you can say something and just be like, no, dummy, or you'll say, uh, let's talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, why don't we talk about that in like four and a half, five books? That sounds like <laughs> oh, a good, good plan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let me clear my 2028. <laughs> uh, so the next moment that really stood out to me is Suan Sancha, both internally and externally, making it very clear uh, healing Matt is not a guaranteed thing that she is definitely going to do. And I think the last time that we checked in with her, it felt like Varen and Moraine were kind of the ruthless ones. And she was the one who uh, kind of really was in it for the for the for the goal. Right. She was just about making sure the dragon was able to accomplish what he needed to. And so to hear her kind of take that and push it to the extreme, I thought was a really interesting twist on the character that we're finally starting to get in the head of a little more. Uh, yeah, I mean, we joke all the time about the good place. It's it's a trolley problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like if if we if. The salvation of the world depends on Rand and Rand, at least by some interpretations, needs to have the power of the horn. Then you have to sacrifice Matt. Right. And right. that it seemed to me I'm not going to get my schools of moral philosophy correct, but it seems like she was purely for the the ultimate. Uh, what is the school? I'm forgetting Utilitarianism. It. Utilitarianism, where it's purely I need to do the option that gives the most good to the world and the most good is Rand becomes powerful enough to defeat the dark one one would suggest well and this is always the thing that's fascinating to me i think we've mentioned this once or twice before with the way of the leaf where i'm a pacifist in the real world but i don't think i would be a pacifist in fantasy world because trollocs exist and they will eat me no matter how much i talk to them Right. Mm. Um, and I kind of feel the same way here. Right. I am vehemently not a pure, like consequentialist utilitarian in the real world because the things you can get out of a trolley problem horrify me. Right. You can be okay. like, OK, we'll sacrifice one to save these however many over and over and over again. That's icky. But I think the interesting thing here is at some point, if the dark one wins, we don't quite know what that looks like yet. But it kind of means you have an infinity on one side of the moral scales, which makes it mm. so you can kind of justify anything you want to if the end result is the dark one doesn't win. And that seems like the kind of thing Robert Jordan will want to dig into in maybe another 11 books. Uh, so nobody likes moral philosophers, but uh, there's a variation on the trolley problem 
a blum, which um, instead of, so I, I'm, I think we are shorthanding it because we assume people know. So the trolley problem is a trolley is out of control going down some tracks towards five people. If you could throw a switch and instead it goes down a different track and only kills one person, are you morally obligated to throw the switch, right? And so pure utilitarianism like Tyler is describing means yes, you are because it's better to save the five and let the one die right like pure math essentially there's a variation on the trolley problem that feels more apt here which is instead of a switch to throw there's an obese man on a on the bridge above the train tracks and he would you then be morally obligated to shove this obese man off the tracks and have him land and essentially derail the trolley and save all five people again the pure math works yeah. out the same you're trading one for five and so if you are are uh, adhering to that moral system it makes sense but the actual act of pushing a person uh no yeah. matter their size off a bridge in order to stop the events feels much different than it does throwing a kind of switch as a part of that all of that is meant to say which is killing matt is matt just yeah. letting him succumb to what's already happening that feels more passive let him go if you need to essentially still him or put him down um that feels like a very different kind of choice and um you know i think rand would understand if the story was we didn't get to him in time even if that's not strictly true yeah. i do not think rand would understand we stilled him or we killed him in order to preserve your chance of being the dragon. And I think that would have ramifications. And I think it's really interesting that you are framing this in terms of how Rand would perceive it, because I think it's very notable that that is not how Suwan is framing it in this discussion, Mm. right? Her analysis seems to be purely in terms of what is best for her and the tower, not what is best for Rand in this instance. And Mm. I think that that's really a, 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 it's a narrow, it's it's a fine distinction to make because helping Rand is how she wants to help the tower. But I, I think that is a little bit iffy in terms of if motivation matters, which we're now back into moral philosophy. But if it does, hers clearly don't seem to be as kind of clean cut and ideal as you can make it out to be, right? This could be a pretty clear cut case of I want to help the world, so let's let Matt die. But she's framing it as I want to make my use of the horn as good as it can be. That feels worse. Mm. Um and then it turns out that the Sean Chan are like a lionfish. I don't know if you have anything to say about this extended <laughs> metaphor, but that was the one that got me. I don't I don't think any of us thought this was the end of the Sean Chan last book. Uh right. I I don't think we got that exact language of the forerunners or what have you, but um I think it was clear this is a bigger threat and a temporary victory. If that I desperately want to refer to a movie that came out this summer, but the spoilers are so deep and you haven't seen it and listeners haven't seen it. It's not fair to throw in. So I will not, but uh, I think people who know me are probably like, I know what he's talking about. Uh, So one other note I have to kind of just check off is just that we were questioning Varen's motivations before. Mm -hmm. And if my reading of this is correct, Varen did not pursue on orders of the conspiracy, but on her own choice and by virtue of those choices is now a member of the conspiracy. That I think is a very reasonable interpretation of events, but not necessarily the only one, right? Mm. So I think in the previous book, the way that I kind of read things is Varen figured out enough on her own to get involved in the discussion between Moraine and Siwan. And then it seemed like she was sent by them to trail Rand and Perrin and Matt But at the end of the book, we learned that she wasn't actually sent by them, right? We got the contradiction between Moraine and Varen. And so I think you can either read this sequence exactly as you have, which is that she has kind of stumbled upon this conspiracy and is now kind of the third potentially doubtful part of it, but clearly has kind of the goals of the conspiracy in mind, right? She is working towards getting Rand uh, successfully as much as possible. The other reading of this is that you might now question Varen's kind of stumbling upon the conspiracy-ness 
did she get the details that led her to this because she was just looking in the right place or was it because she was also looking for Rand for some other nefarious purpose right and so mm. what I love about Varen is that there are always the very good and very bad reading of her and it always feels like a coin flip to me and that's kind of where I'm at at this point in this book I think and that's where we both are when we look at all academics near us. It's just a coin flip. Are they the best of humanity or the worst of humanity? Uh, well, now that I've said something to get me fired, uh, my only other note on this chapter is um, just that the immediate turn at the end towards uh, tell me every single thing you can about the three women, um, I thought, you know, was a dramatic beat to end on, but just yeah. showed that this is still, you know, again, there's this is never going to be as simple as a, a chosen one narrative. So we got all this stuff that helps us kind of advance the chosen one narrative. And it's like, yep. And there's also these particularly two, but three we need to also deal with. Yeah, and I think that this is just a really effective version of what we saw with Min earlier in the book, which is like, give us a character looking at the main characters so we can both reevaluate them and kind of get familiar with being in someone else's skin, right? So I think that just works really effectively at the end of this chapter. Uh, and then that leads us into the beginning of the next chapter, 13, Punishments. So this chapter begins with Egwene staring at the ceiling in her small room in the novice quarters. Um, the rooms are connected by small holes and so she is able to whisper and she starts briefly talking with Elaine um, first about uh, how she's worried about being trapped again and then um, they basically start talking about how they really should be greeted as heroes for all of the things that they did but it's kind of unfair that they are being held like this. Um, Varen told them to keep everything secret but Egwene says that she will do whatever she needs to to avoid being stilled. Um, at this point Foul Lane enters the room trying to catch Egwene and get her to talk so that she can be punished. Um, she doesn't do so, and she is told that she is being summoned before the Merlin. Um, Elaine joins them, and then eventually Nynaeve joins as well. Um, they um, basically briefly uh, have a conversation about uh, Nynaeve and Lan. Um, she can see uh, Nynaeve staring at one of the warders and starts thinking about how that needs to change. Um, eventually, the uh, Merlin makes them wait outside, calls them runaways, and then eventually brings them into uh, her room where Nynaeve begins arguing with her, basically saying that if Leandrin was black, um, why are they being punished? Uh, this is when the uh, Merlin reveals that not only is Leandrin black, but there were 12 other black sisters who killed three people and stole a large number of artifacts, specifically Ter Angriel, from the um, power. Um, Nynaeve basically keeps arguing until Suan gets her to stop by more or less shouting at her um, and says that they are going to be punished. Uh, the punishment is that they will be uh, first off whipped. Second, everyone will be told about it. Third, they will be uh, cleaning for the rest of their natural born lives seems to be the goal. And then finally, the uh, Merlin says that in reality, they are being punished for listening to Leandrin and not noticing that something was wrong. And their actual punishment um, is basically that they are going to be raised to be accepted, right? Uh, both Egwene and Elaine are going to be promoted, and that is a bad thing because not only is the first couple of weeks of being an accepted the hardest of your time in training, but all of the eyes to die who don't think they're ready are going to be taking it out on them during those two weeks. Um, at this point, the Merlin starts talking to Elaine about her mother, the Queen Morgays. Uh, she says that Morgays is upset and threatened to end sending the uh, the daughters and sons of Andor to uh, the White Tower for training, and she has also dismissed her Aes Sedai advisor, Elida. Um, she then basically says that she's convinced Morgays that she will, that uh, Elaine will stay in the city, but that this is only a temporary measure and things need to go more or less perfectly to get back in uh, her good graces, and then Elaine is sent away with Liana. And that's when we break into the next chapter, which is all about Egwene, Elaine, and Suan. So 
lots of conversation, lots of little details. This of the three, I think it is the longest chapter and the one that I maybe had the least specific things to pull out and talk about, I think because it kind of advances the plot pieces so much. So I'm curious what you thought about this. Was it engaging and driving forward or was it kind of the in-between stuff, moving pieces around fluff? Um, you know, I found all three of these chapters pretty compelling. And part of that is returning to this, you know, place we have only gotten glimpses of and learning more and deepening Suan and and so on. Um, yeah, I said that right. Uh, and it it is again, we're we're not crossing streams, but we also will be talking about uh, some of similar topics in the TV show coming up. So we had some neat synchronicity uh, between them. Um so, uh, you know, it's funny because before we started recording, I was like, oh, I think this might be a, a doozy because we do have these three long chapters. And then as you were going through your summary, I realized almost all my notes on this are just plot, which I yeah. try to prevent myself from doing because I know you're going to do the summary every time. So I'm going to be refreshed and don't have to write down like they're going to get promoted. So kind of looking at my notes, I think of the three, they, there's kind of the least to say about this because so much of it is just what happens. Now, yeah. that being said, you know, I, I've, I've studied my Tyler nomics, we'll call it that, uh, where um, I know that then what becomes important to you are the kind of character beats. And I think we naturally started a, a big one, which is, you know, I think nobody probably reading really thinks they're about to get drummed out or about to be stilled. But the fact that Elaine and Egwene are so ready to bind themselves together and yeah. face their fate out in the world, essentially did feel like a development of that relationship and not necessarily one I expected, particularly they don't always know, but they kind of know that they're competing for Rand in some ways. Right. Yeah. So to, to have that kind of girl bond moment was important. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting to know. I read Elaine as, as doing that more or less 100% for the like, female bonding of it, right? Like she does not want to be stilled. She does not want her friend to be stilled. They will stand together. On the other hand, and maybe this is just because we're in Egwene's head and not Elaine's, but Egwene's at least internal motivation seems to be uh, this room is almost as bad as a collar. I know how terrible that can be. And if we're kind of tracing Egwene, uh, PTSD is the term that I keep using for it. I don't know if that's exactly right, but uh, if we're kind of tracing how the trauma of the previous book is making its way into this one, I think that's a really big moment kind of embedded in exactly what you're describing is just the, the vehemence to which they are resisting having channeling taken away is a little bit shocking given that they just learned to channel like three months ago yeah and and i do think i sometimes lose sight you know it's actually kind of a thing in fantasy or sci-fi where it's like characters go through awful things and how much is that really going to bear on them and i think it's a good reminder that this isn't just Egwene from Two Rivers. This is Egwene who was collared and shackled. And, you know, there's talk in this chapter and and the next about these punishments and discipline. And that is never as extreme as what we saw with the Sean Chan. But also, you know, generally speaking, a system that leads to corporal punishment is one that most people don't appreciate anymore. Yeah. Right. Or does it's hard to read that as correct. Um Maybe that's my bias considering where we live and so on. But it does seem like, you know, um, lashes are going to be violent and terrible. And, you know, that's important to remember that this is a part of who Tarvelon is. Yeah, it's also worth noting, this is just a little bit of what Robert Jordan is. Um, I'm here to tell you there is a good bit of corporal punishment throughout this series. And I think it's just, you know, to some degree tied up in how, you know, what he knew and how, you know, he was brought up and what have you, right? We know he went to military school, for example. That's one way of raising people. And it is an effective one for some and very much not for others. Um, I think for me, the really kind of interesting example of this, though, is Fowlane is put in charge of the girls, clearly has something out for them. And then later on in the chapter is given a punishment for trying to do her duty in a malicious way. And so while I am always, uh, I think it was 
maybe in the good place, maybe in the book based on the good place that Mike Schur wrote, he talks about uh, one of the philosophers talks about how cruelty is the maxim that we should be looking at, right? Like how cruel is this and does it match the cruelty of what it's punishing? And there was a moment there where I was like, this is a really cruel system. I don't like it at all. But it is kind of nice to see it punishing that malicious spirit just as hard as it does the actual, you know, problems that it's designed probably to deal with. Like, uh, as horrible as that system is, if it's directed correctly, at least it, it gets the good part of the utilitarian side, even if we hate <laughs> the bad part. Yeah, and, and it's also in this chapter uh, that you know, has revelations that essentially the Amarillan seat's biggest fears are true, that there is a black Aja and yep. there, you know, I thought, gosh, uh, I hope I'm not confusing with the next chapter, but the revelation that it's not just Leandrin, it's 12 more, yep. but it, as a part of that, that it's like, oh, and she went back, right? Like yeah. it, it, it kind of was a reminder that, you know, she handed them off at towards the end of the last book and then disappeared again. Yep. Um, I won't pretend I understood all the different relics and types, but I thought the takeaway was they were trying to steal as much as they could. Yep. They took some that are in the most powerful type, and yet people within Tarvelon are not sure what they do. And so yep. that's kind of like some wild cards in the deck that may pop up moving forward. That's correct. Uh, this needs to happen once per book. This can be the time that we do the Angriel lecture. And if you don't have it by the next <laughs> time, we can continue doing it. Angriel are kind of the base artifacts. Moraine has one. They let you channel more than you normally could. Sa Angriel are extremely powerful Angriel that can do instead of maybe two or three times as powerful, maybe a hundred times as powerful if you are using one of these items. That is what the Black Aja were after, according to Suan. They wanted to steal the most powerful, just like let you channel more or less an unlimited amount. The third type, the one that they actually ended up getting their hands on, are what are called Tear Angrail. And Tear Angrail, they have magical power, but it doesn't enhance the channeler. It does some specific function. Each one has a unique function. So the interesting thing about these is that they don't exactly know what was stolen, right? Some of them will have specific functions that are known, but I think Egwene in this chapter thinks something like, uh, if they stole ones that the White Tower doesn't know what they do, does that mean they also don't know what they do? Or does that mean the Black Aja know what these things do mm -hmm. that even the Tower was unaware of? And um, a clarification question. When Nynaeve was doing tests, and yeah. it was like a gateway. Was that one of those types of things? Yes. So uh, the Terangriel that they use to test uh, novices to become accepted, those arches are an example of Terangriel. Any magic item that doesn't enhance a channeler, it does something, Terangriel. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is way in the weeds on Star Wars, which is where I live, but I don't know how much we've tipped our hand on that. Um, but, you know, the kind of larger mythology of Star Wars has started to delve into these types of things, right? There are often dark side Sith relics that some Jedi goes and finds and they lock them up in a vault, but they try to keep them out of dangerous hands without knowing exactly what they are. And yeah. it's actually some of the more problematic parts of star Wars for me, because they are very fantasy, right? It's, it's yeah. much more dungeons and dragons than it is star Wars proper films, in my opinion. Uh -huh. um, but I do think that I just want to react that that is a really great little tantalizing detail, right? Yeah. Um, my mind immediately was like, oh, they know what they do. <laughs> like yeah. they, they know what they are and they have specific goals and a specific purpose. I imagine somebody handed them a shopping list uh, would yeah. be my kind of hypothesis uh, with no real evidence to support. I both love that hypothesis and then would ask, and who wrote that shopping list for them? which I think is an extra fun question to have floating around in our head. Um, as we're going through Their this... wives, if it's like my household, <laughs> she writes the list, I fulfill the list. No, uh, yes, uh, I would even just go as far as Baalzaman, but I do think that's a second set of questions that who knows if the Black Aja are that tied or is it more like something in the Forsaken or something? Anyway, go on with the point you were making. 
So throughout all of this discussion, it's not just the Amerlin laying out all of these details. It's almost like the Amerlin laying out all of these details while having Nynaeve shout, but we're innocent at her. And I want to bring this up for two reasons. One is because Nynaeve the hothead is going to be a trope that we need to be familiar with going forward. Um, the other reason that I mentioned this is because in her hotheadedness, Nynaeve does something that is to Nynaeve what talking about fish is to Suan Sancha. And it is considered by many to be a, a trope that everyone enjoys in memes throughout the series. And I want to make it a game. Let me know whenever you think you know what Nynaeve does over and over again, and I will verify whether you have caught the meme. Hmm. I, I don't have it at this moment. I will yeah, say that much. It, it happens, I believe, 21 times this book. And I think we caught the first one or two in this chapter. So mm. you've got opportunities. Okay. Maybe I'll go back and reread. Narrator, he won't go back and reread. <laughs> that was just close enough to a Ron Howard voice that I'll give you full credit <laughs> for that joke. Uh, I think that the most kind of interesting twist in this chapter, uh, the, these two run together a little bit for me because they're so on Sancho yeah. talking. Uh, but I think the most interesting twist in this chapter is I'm going to punish you by promoting you. Right. Mm. Right after we get the like, oh, corporal punishment is bad feeling. Then we get a simultaneous yay. And what do you mean? That's a punishment. And I found that little like emotional roller coaster really effective. Um what did you think about this kind of twist of there's a good thing buried in all of the horrible that is about to happen to you? Uh, it didn't really surprise me. One, it's just narratively convenient to be like, let's yada, yada, yada and advance them. You're in yeah. your second year at Hogwarts. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think actually it, it, I'm not going to say that I saw that kind of combination of of promotion punishment ahead of time, but it's not unfamiliar. Right. Like sometimes yeah. Jedi get turned into Jedi Knights because they survived something. And it's like, and now you have responsibilities or or like Harry Potter. There were times where it was like usually it was like, well, you don't need to have exams now or something yeah. like that. And they're like, yay, except that means, you know, the magic's getting harder or whatever. So so it worked out pretty well uh the general acceptance of the hazing is the most troubling part of that it's like yeah. yep you're gonna be treated like crap for a while and you just have to take it i think that's more troubling than anything to me yeah and i agree with it and have nothing to say other than like get ready you to agree with hazing. About corporal punishment <laughs> no no put it on record everybody just heard it tyler agrees with hazing I'm sure you've signed a piece of paper on your campus that agreed to protect against hazing. So <laughs> uh, there was a running joke on my speech team where we would talk about hazing all year, like hazing the new kids, hazing the new kids. And then it turned out what hazing was is like at the like bonfire we had the last night, you had to go first when people went around and said what your favorite part of the year was like. It was devastating. No. <laughs> uh, that's the kind of hazing that I think the the White Tower needs to be moving towards. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I, I've alluded before, I just went to Cambridge uh, as a part of my trip to the UK and uh, our our riverboat tour down uh, the, the Cambridge, uh, the camp, uh, showed us there's a door on the back of one of the colleges and the hazing ritual there is the first night all the first years move in, they set off the fire alarm and point them all out a door at the back of the building, which just has no landing, nothing. It just opens out and they fall in the river. Uh, that's more the Tarve Lawn style in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I then found kind of following up from the pretty not happy descriptions of punishment that we get here. I then find, though, the one kind of redeeming thing is the Merlin, I think, has a really, really good reason for punishing them this harshly, which is how dare you fall for a scheme as dumb as the mm -hmm. evil looking lady told you to go with her and, and tell no one. Like, that's a pretty good reason to get in trouble of all of the reasons for you to get corporal punishment. And once again, this was just a moment where I was like, oh, I remember reading this at like 13 and immediately siding with the teenager. They did nothing wrong. And now I'm in my like 30s and I'm like, oh, no, kids, you did something really, really wrong. 
It feels like uh, my IT department when you reveal to them you fell for a phishing email or yeah. something, and they they're like, "How dare you? Like you're better than this." Uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and 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 it, I, I just on the whole, it works, and it means I'm excited to see the next step, and I. Yeah. You know, wanted them all to to advance and to see what happens. Well, I'm pretending I care as much about Elaine as I do. I I don't yeah. care about her as much as the other two. Um, the last piece of this kind of heavy political talk, my reaction was this is important, but it's not particularly exciting. Like yeah. the takeaway is there is now daylight between uh Camelin and yeah. Tarvillon. Um, yeah. and that a previously close political alliance reads to me like Republican Jedi, right? And now yep. there's a gap between them, um, which can continue to grow, can be exploited, or just means uh, dark times ahead. Yep. It was weird that it came from such a seemingly minor event, right? Yep. It's like the queen arrived for a visit and her daughter wasn't here. So now everything is bad forever. And I would just add two things to that, which I think is exactly the right set of observations. Number one is any time in a world where we have just learned that fate is maybe sentient, uh, what a coincidence should definitely be like a big giant asterisk. Um, the other thing that I will note about this is that this does free up one name who happens to have had a foretelling about Rand shaking the world to its core. Elida, we had assumed, was kind of stuck in Camelin with the Queen. She no longer is. So we need to be keeping an eye on where Elida is at and kind of what her uh, involvement in the world is, because she's one of the few people who has actually encountered Rand and knows who he is. Uh, helpful to be reminded of that. Not going to pretend I remembered that in the slightest. Um, and I guess the other thing I noted was just that, um, at least for the time being, Elaine seems more on the Amerlin side of the divide. Yeah. She wants to finish her training. She agrees to do that essentially already almost immediately agreeing to disobey her mom in this conflict to come. Yeah. And that's, I think the correct read, right? This is a girl who was like, I will fight for anything to learn to channel. And then when she learns that what that involves is saying no to her mom, she's like, cool, I'm 17. That sounds like the best. <laughs> and that feels pretty in character for a character in that like 17 to 19 ish range, just reject authority, do the thing that has fireworks coming out of your hands. Like, I'm down. Um, any last thoughts before we get to what honestly is the second half of this conversation, chapter 14? Uh, no, Elaine is sent away, and then the bite of the thorns begins. To you, Tyler. In the bite of the thorns, the Amerlin literally waits minutes before she starts talking again, which is one sentence, but is horrifying to imagine. Uh, <laughs> she says that she's tried to keep the events of the Blacks uh, kind of insurgency secret. She's made sure that no one connects the disappearance of the Terangreal with the deaths. Um, and she uh, basically says that she is unsure who she can trust. She runs through all of the people she thinks she can. She lifts uh, Liana and Sherium and Varen. All of those she says she trusts a bit, but not much. She says she thought she could trust Moraine, but now she doubts. And then she says that really the only two people that she knows for sure are not Black are Egwene, Elaine, and Nynaeve. Um, when asked why Elaine isn't going to be involved with anything, the answer is because I need her mom to not be mad at me so I can't involve her. It is then explained what the girls will be doing because the Merlin knows that they are not of the Black Aja. They will be hunting the Blacks and trying to track down the stolen Terangreal. So they are basically told that they will be given all of the information about what was taken, about the women, who are of the Black Aja. And at this point, um, Naini volunteers. She says, I will do this alone. And then Egwene basically says, no, no, no. I'm old enough to make this decision for myself and I will do it with you. Um, at this point, the Merlin says that Varen will have all of the information with them. She gives them a letter, which she says they should only use in emergencies. And that letter basically says you can do whatever this person tells you by order of the Merlin seat. Um, the girls ask after Matt and are 
immediately dismissed without being given any answer. So this is an even shorter chapter, but it lays out what I thought of, the at least the first time I read this, as a really unexpected twist. I did not expect this to be murder mystery plot for the girls, but at least for Egwene and Nynaeve, that seems to be the direction we're headed. I was kind of expecting more Hogwarts than Agatha Christie. Well, and I think that is the direction it felt like this pushed us in. Um, being completely uncouth, I went to Knives Out, right? Where mm-hmm. uh, Benoit Blanc uh, deputizes Marta. I almost said Ana de Armas just because I couldn't think of her name, but Marta. And it's, you know, it's partially let's take my main suspect and make her, um, you know, uh work for me um broadly speaking this all really worked for me it got me excited and it's like oh okay i assume this will be their plot for this book it would be my hypothesis and i look forward to seeing uh what that means and how that goes i liked the language of you are my hounds had something nicely visceral about it and you know uh, I went to Hounds of the Hound of the Baskervilles and that kind of like, you know, um, release the hounds type idea mm-hmm. of they're going to be in pursuit and they're they're sniffing, they're exploring and hunting. And, you know, I'm I'm mixing metaphors myself across a few things, but but that's exciting to to think about what they're going to do. Uh, what I alluded to, but then stopped because I was conscious of the people who listen to us a chapter at a time. Um, it's here that she reveals that she's too smart to assume that the 12 who left were the whole group. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I had that was, I was like, Oh, I should have seen that too. Right. Like, yep. like, of course, and you know, they, she was meant to believe that it was now over with within the halls. Um, and so I thought that was a really nice way to show that um, the Amerlin deserves her seat. Even if she explains it like it's fish, she does still have a good view on it. Yeah. And I thought for me, the most interesting part of that is her kind of like uh, shrinking circle, right? She starts by kind of saying like, I could trust anyone at the tower, except I don't believe that all of the blacks actually left. And then it's like, okay, well, then I should be able to trust this group, but no. And I found it really interesting to hear who were her kind of like final list, right? It almost seems like she runs down her last like four or five people she thinks she can trust, but she's not just perfectly sure. And that list is Sherium. Liana, Varen, and Moraine. And so I think if we are keeping track of who are the important Aes Sedai, that feels like kind of like the starting lineup for the light side, if we will, right? We can't trust them all fully. We know Varen is already on our iffy list, but that is is a pretty good place if you're just keeping a few names in your head. And I found that section really engaging in exactly the same way you're describing. It's it's kind of that like piecing together the initial clues, who can I rule out and therefore who potentially are the allies? And of course, the most exciting answer to that question is I can't trust anyone. Hmm. Yeah, I felt uh, I love those old uh, grid logic problems you get yeah. and you're like, OK, this sentence mentioned those two people, so they can't be the same or whatever. It's like the yep. simplest clues to build from as you're constructing your logic. Um, I have a note here. I was thinking about how there's so much concerns about training but not about power, right? And, you know, again, I think that is something the show has picked up on as well, which is we don't have to know about, we don't have to worry about how much power, we have to worry about what they do with the power and and if the power consumes someone, right? Seems to be some of the the mythology here, which, um, you know, I think in moments where there's channeling going on, you forget that these people could do great harm to themselves or be consumed by it. And so this, this was a good reminder of it. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting things that uh, happens. I think it might actually be at the end of the previous chapter rather than uh, in this one. Uh, But uh, when the Merlin is talking about potentially promoting uh, not just Egwene and Elaine, but also Nynaeve, she basically says the only reason she wasn't able to push through that Nynaeve was ready is because she still doesn't have the ability to control when she is able to channel. And so it's that interesting dynamic where it seems like becoming uh, an Aes Sedai is less about being powerful and more about being restrained and controlled. 
old. And so I think that's a that's a really interesting thing to be paying attention to is we've gotten a lot of hype about especially Nynaeve, but also Egwene in terms of kind of the level of their power. But that actually seems like almost irrelevant to how well you do in Aes Sedai Hogwarts. Uh, yes, all of that is true. <laughs> um, and you know, I guess where I'm stuck, where my mind is at, as you made that comment, is like I still am trying to figure out who is more powerful between the two familiar characters. And I think Nynaeve has always been ahead in that race, but there seem to be these clues that it's actually perhaps Egwene, but Egwene just can't figure out how to turn it on and turn it off yet. Yeah, right. so the the way that I would think about this is kind of in terms of two uh, examples that we've gotten. Um, Actually, of... can you tell it to me like it's fish? That would be helpful. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, Sorry. So I think that, no, that was a great joke. Do not apologize <laughs> for jokes like that. Um, so I think uh, the example of Nynaeve with the Merlin at the beginning of the last book is a really one to highlight Nynaeve, right? She cannot channel unless she's mad, but when she is mad, she can out-channel someone who is maybe the second or third most powerful channeler in the world, right? So Nynaeve, in terms of just raw, outright power, see Seems to have more at least potential than Egwene does. Um, the interesting thing that we got at the beginning of this book, though, is there was a brief mention of how Nine or sorry, of how Egwene was forced to channel a large amount by the Sean Chan. And so she had kind of like rapidly accelerated in her ability with the one power. So it's worth noting, while kind of on the like maximum ceiling, I think Nynaeve has been described at this point as more powerful than Egwene. In terms of maybe current ability to harness and use the power, I think Egwene is probably miles ahead of Nynaeve, both because of her kind of forced training with the Sean Chan and just because she can channel when she wants, as opposed to Nynaeve, who still has her block. Well, and thank thank you for that. That was very clarifying. I would also just say it's it's funny how in the weird format of the show, you know, we've been doing this now over a year, and yet I still feel we're so early in the pathway on these characters. And a lot of things you've brought out tonight in other episodes, it's like, remember now, this is a long time into their journey, and a lot has happened to them, you know, years in at this point. Like it would seem nine months. Something oh, like okay. That. Yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, it is significant, and to remember not to just consider these to be the same people we met before. That and yeah. so essentially, what I'm saying is, yeah, when we met Egwene and Nynaeve, they could not channel. They did not know they had these abilities. Yeah. And now they're both pretty advanced in what they're doing. So that's all, um, certainly interesting. Yeah, and and as we're thinking about kind of that growth of these characters, the moment of that that really shone for me was when Nynaeve says, you don't need to do this, Egwene. I will hunt the Blacks on my own. And Egwene's response is the, like, The Black no. Aja. That, again, that's, I don't okay, want those fair. sound bites to get out into the world. Hunt the Black Aja. The Black uh, Aja, you are own. correct. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and Egwene just has a moment of like, you are not the boss of me anymore. Stop treating yeah. me like a girl in the village. And I thought that moment just worked really well for, I think in the, the previous, Previous chapter, we see kind of Egwene at her like scared low point, and then here getting her a little bit more just like, no, nah, don't talk for me. I'm a grown up now. Like that yeah. works really well. Uh, completely agree. Uh, and yet is also a teenager, right? I yeah. mean, uh, how many times do I, you know, tell a student they need to start showing up to class on time and I get a similar attitude back? Like, yeah. you know, um, hey, so. In this tumultuous environment, let's hand some incredibly powerful, dangerous paperwork over to two people who are definitely going to misplace or have that stolen and, uh, you know, uh, have trouble, right? This to me, just everything about it was Chekhov's paperwork. <laughs> I, I mean, I was a 23-year-old who was once told I was in charge of whether or not 30 undergrads passed a class or not. So I understand <laughs> giving misplaced power to people in their early 20s. Uh, 
but no, you're exactly right, right? This is yeah. the equivalent of handing like an FBI badge to a 15 year old and just be like, go have fun, kid. Like, yeah, this can only end poorly, but good. That's what I want out of a fantasy book. Just like hand yep. away for your characters to ruin their own lives and then let's watch it happen. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, narrative is conflict, right? Yeah. We wouldn't be here if there wasn't conflict, and, and it does seem ripe for misuse. Um, I assume, and this is Greg's wild speculation corner, uh, I've <laughs> never seen you dance to one of my jingles before. Um, I would go ahead and say they're not going to abuse it so much as it will get stolen or misused by someone else. Um, that's my prediction on there with no evidence whatsoever. That is shockingly right and wrong simultaneously. And I don't <laughs> know how you manage to find the like uh the the cat in a box of every prediction. You, you get exactly there. Schrodinger, that's the name I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. I, I knew exactly what you meant, but wasn't throwing you the lifeline. So no, you're good. Uh, uh and that's what I got. It sounds like that's yeah. what you've got. Um, so I will say, uh, and this connects with something I said a few minutes ago, we're already shockingly far into this book. Um, you know, right. I kind of feel like we, oh yeah, we just cracked this one open and we started and today, tonight's reading, uh, got us through, uh, a quarter, right? Uh, yeah. we're already, uh, well towards the kind of midway point. And if our previous experiences mean anything, then the pace is going to start picking up. Which includes the fact that we have another uh, triple header for next week's uh, podcast. So there are three short chapters. I think it still ends up only being like 26 in my book or something yeah, pretty reasonable. Right. So it's chapter four, uh, excuse me, chapter 15, The Gray Man, not to be confused with the Ryan Gosling movie, which was horrible. Don't watch that on Netflix, anybody. That's that's my advice of the night. Just to be very clear, the Ryan Gosling movie he's referring to is not Barbie. Go see that no. one. <laughs> uh, chapter 16, Hunters 3, which uh, that's my favorite of the look ahead. And chapter 17, Red Sister. Uh, so 15, 16, 17. Uh, but also more importantly, remember to tune in to our television recap episode uh, dropping in two days time. And we've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. Um, if you have somebody in your life who, you know, uh, try out the show. I know faithful listener Ben harassed somebody on um, the T who said they liked Wheel of Time and forced them to download our podcast, I think, at knife point on the on the, the subway. <laughs> uh, so if you have somebody who has tried out the television show but may not be a reader, Please send us, uh, send them our way. Throw up uh, a social media post and share our television episodes if that would appeal. Um, we're trying to do a little more outreach and draw people in. And if you have anybody like that in your life, uh, we do not hide our old episodes anywhere behind a paywall or any such nonsense. They're all just out there. Um, so if somebody wants to start fresh and go on this whole journey at their own pace, um, we would love to have more of them. Uh, and I just took care of all the housekeeping, so I'll just turn it over to Tyler to say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. No, I'm not going to end it just like that. <laughs> uh, I think that we have three really exciting chapters coming up. And one of the things that I love about this book is you mentioned kind of the pattern for Robert Jordan is maybe take the first like third of the book and then kind of slowly accelerate towards the end. Uh, this book is the first one for me where Robert Jordan does my favorite thing he can do, which is says, why would I slowly accelerate? This thing's a Porsche and just puts the pedal on <laughs> the floor. So I don't know if we're quite there next week, but we are only a week or two away from your uh, metaphor from earlier in the episode back to the future making sense we don't need roads where this book goes next time through the glass columns <laughs> so ends another episode of through the glass columns we thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the wheel of time in our own sweet time this podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. <laughs>
If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend the show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.